This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Ben Korsha. And I'm Daphne Yasova Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, Daphne. How's it going? I'm doing great, thanks. Good morning. So this is our first podcast. It's very exciting. And um, today we're going to go over some of the articles that came out in Journal of Perinatology, the April edition. Um, so should we start with last month's issue of this uh, donor milk and uh, exclusive breast milk study um, versus formula that uh, looked at IVH and PVL? Well, I think we can't get away without talking about it. Um, Obviously, you know that I think breast milk is really important, and I think we're going to learn over time how important it is. Um, But this this, uh, article was a little complicated. It, 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 it was, but I think it, uh, it goes with sort of what your sentiment is, which is that, yeah, EBM, uh, breast milk and donor milk is best. And so just for the people who haven't uh, read this paper, um, it was um, published in the last edition of the Journal of Perinatology in March. And it comes from um, Dr. Karomi and... Um, Senior author is Boraina Parvez. They're uh, physicians and researchers from Westchester Medical Center in the state of New York. And what they did was really to compare sort of the evidence of the incidence of severe uh, IVH and uh, periventricular leukomalacia, PVL, between two groups of babies who were extremely low birth weight and comparing whether they received um, human milk versus formula. And there's a lot of things going on with this study. Um, and I think the most critical aspect of it is its design. Um, it was not prospective. It was retrospective. And they uh, spend a wide time frame from, I think, 2012 to 2017. And, and they went over some of the uh, feeding protocols where they, 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 the feeding protocol seemed fairly standard. I don't know what you thought about it. Yeah, I thought, they, I thought that was pretty consistent to, you know, things that we've done, the both of us at different institutions. Um, but, uh, for example, they had a wide range of, um, the epochs had different, you know, fortification, there are different things that, uh, part of the human milk uh, protocol that they had that were different over time. Right. And... And I agree with you. I think they, 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 they offered colostrum to every preterm baby within the first 24 hours of life. They started with like trophic feeds at around 20 ml per kilo. They went up by 20 ml per kilo. I, I thought that the honesty of disclosing their whole feeding mm-hmm. protocol, it's something that is so controversial still that it required a lot of guts, I think. Um, I think it was interesting to see also that at some point in the paper, they, they wrote something to the effect of the decision to hold feeds was based on NICU protocol, which takes into account um, gastric volume and types of residuals. And considering the, the sort of, uh, yeah. yeah the, <laughs> the discussion around residuals. Uh-huh. Yeah. Among with residuals, I was like, oh my God, uh, are they going to get knocked out for this? 
Um, and then, so, so the, the crux of the study is that they divided their, their babies into two groups, some of them that were um, exposed to, um, to bovine sort of uh, feeds. And, and uh, I'm going to read it from you from the, from, the, uh, from the paper itself. It said the EHM, which is the exclusive human milk cohort, uh, consisted of all infants who had no exposure to bovine proteins and received a diet of only, consisting only of maternal milk and or donor milk, fortified with human milk-derived fortifiers and colostrum. And then they had a non-EHM group that uh, consisted of infants who had any exposure to bovine protein, bovine milk-derived human milk fortifier and or formula prior to 34 weeks. And so their findings were um, interesting. Um, looking at uh, head imaging results, uh, grade 3, uh, grade 4 IVH, PVL, well, individually, they, had, they found no difference in the incidence of IVH only. They found no difference in the incidence of PVL only. Um, IVH and PVL was not really significant either. However, IVH and or PVL, that they found significance. And so uh, the bottom line is that in their conclusion, uh, they wrote that exclusive human milk diet had an independent neuroprotective effect and was associated with decreased incidence of severe IVH and or PVL, supporting the need for exclusive human milk in ELBW infants. Um, obviously, uh, there's um, a few, um, there's a, another modifier I think that we should talk about is the fact that their rates of NEC were significantly different between the two groups, sort of not really unexpected because the human milk group uh, had 5% incidence versus 17% in the non-human milk group. So that's sort of what they found. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see what, what your thoughts were on this study specifically, because I have, there's one specific issue that really bothered me, but, but I want to see what you, what you had to say first. Well, I think, you know, the authors provide a, a really good path of, you know, physiology for why this would work. And, and we know that um, breast milk has, you know, some innate properties um, that could theoretically be protective. What I, what I really wanted to hear more about is what do, what does the first week look like in their institution? Uh, you know, really, you know, how many of those babies actually get started on the first day of life or the second day of life? And how what what proportion of uh, milk are they getting in the first week of life? How different was um, milk to non-human milk in that first week of life when we know that the, the majority of IBH happens? So they followed these babies, you know, through to term, you know, corrected age where the bulk of their feeding takes place. But we know the bulk of IVH happens in the first week. So I, I would have liked to see a little bit more information about that first week. And I think you're pointing to one of the responses that was sent this, this month to the journal uh, from Praveen Kumar, who talks about specifically this thing that uh, there's plenty of... Um, of good explanation as to why uh, breast milk could have prevented and been protected for IVH and or PVL. Um, but uh, the, 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 um, the reply sort of suggests they're saying that there are several studies that have demonstrated that nearly all IVH in preterm infant occur in the first 72 hours of birth. Mm -hmm. And a significant proportion of these occur as early as within the first six hours of life. And they're touching exactly on that point, which is, so what exactly happens during that time and how much does happen so that it actually does provide some sort of significant effect? And I think that was a very valid sort of question because it's true that it's not really the author's fault. I think providing colostrum within the first 24 hours of life is standard protocol, but how much is actually being given, how much of that actually provides an effect is, is a big question, obviously. 
I think the authors touched on another part that you know I feel strongly about um, is actually getting the oral stimulation and oral feeds. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting, right? Because one of the groups, the non-human milk group, um, wasn't exposed to that at all. And so how much is um, kind of that uh, intervention versus the type of feeding itself? Uh, it's hard for us to parse out. Right. And um, there's, there's the uh, Dr. Kumar who, who, uh, who wrote this response to the article also adds something that I thought was very uh, pointed, which was that uh, she, they would have liked the authors to provide more information on the use um, of practices reported to have an impact on the incidence of IVH, such as do they give prophylactic endomethacin, uh, position of the head, and so on and so forth, especially considering that the, the cohort spans such a wide range of time and that it's a retrospective. Could, could there be differences in practices? Um, I think those are, those are important factors. And the authors did respond, and to, for the most part... Um, they mentioned what you mentioned, that the colostrum oral care within the first 24 hours of life does provide some protective effect against IVH, um, and that they, they suggested that they had no changes in their practices over the five, seven-year periods that they covered, which I'm, I'm more than happy to believe, and uh, they know their unit better than anybody else. There was another interesting um, reply to this article from, um, from Dr. Razak, who is uh, somebody that I'm, I've befriended on Twitter and who is from Saudi Arabia. If you're on Twitter, I think he's a very good follow, uh, Abdul Razak. He always sort of dissects articles in a very sort of dry manner, and he always has uh, good insights. Um, so he, he was mentioning something very interesting, which was that um, the authors did do some corrections uh, in order to evaluate the association between breast milk and... Uh, IVH and PVL, one of these being antenatal steroids. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they corrected for that, rightfully so. But then he points to the idea of whether or not um, it was necessary to correct for NEC. The authors did correct for the difference in the incidence of NEC between between babies who received human milk versus formula. And he was saying that's an inherent effect of the diet itself. So maybe um, controlling for NEC, he says, would be inappropriate as it would partially close an indirect causal path, thereby attenuating the observed association between EHM and IVH or PVL. And I thought that was very interesting. I do think um, there's, there's something here, though. So I'd love to see um, the groups of babies who do have bleeding in the first week of life and then really following what does their diet look like and their their long-term developmental outcomes i think um can is there some regenerative capacity or rehabilitative capacity uh, of our diets on you know brain injury so i you know i think they're on the right track and so what was interesting was that the authors did respond to that query saying that um Obviously, head ultrasounds were done within the first week of life. NEC sometimes develops later in life. And so it's difficult. It's a very difficult question to answer, obviously, whether or not to correct. Um, he points out to some differences as well in some of the odds ratio that had to be corrected. I think that was done. But uh, overall, I think that was very interesting because mm-hmm. uh, the conclusion of the article altogether is something that is not really surprising. It's something that we expected, that human milk is fares better um, in overall outcomes, especially now in this case of IVH versus PVL. And 
but the methodology of the paper obviously left a lot of questions unanswered. And I think that has to do with the wide time frame that they chose, 2012 to 2017, and the fact that it was retrospective. It's very hard to control so many variables during a large time frame in a study that involves so many different variables. Okay, so then I think that the next article that really we should touch on is the article that comes from your former institution, the University of Florida. Um, this article is called Comparing Head Ultrasounds and Susceptibility Weighted Imaging for the Detection of Low-Grade Hemorrhages in Preterm Infants. And it's a good article to follow up with because it's going to get us to go right back to that study from Westchester about uh, IVH and PVL. So uh, did you get a chance to, uh, to go over that article? Well, of course, how could I not review that article? <laughs> but um, I, think it, I think it is important to, uh, it was an important study to do, um, especially since uh, so many centers are moving away from uh, term-corrected MRIs, um, but nobody had actually really done the work to say, you know, what is the, the value other than the cost analysis of the, of the term correct? And I think they, they point to that directly in their yes. discussion. And they, they quoted the 2015 sort of choosing wisely in right. newborn medicine from the uh, AAP that recommended avoiding routine use of equivalent of term equivalent MRIs in preterm neonates due to the insufficient evidence that this screening MRI would benefit the patient's long-term outcomes. Um, and I think that that paper directly comes to sort of contradict this recommendation because it highlights a lot of issues with, uh, with head ultrasound. So um, do you want to summarize this study for us before we go into the details? Yeah, so um, uh, basically what the team did is they took the one week, the seven-day head ultrasound um, and compared it to uh, the term-corrected or kind of 36-week head ultrasound, uh, uh, MRI, excuse me, um, that's kind of standard of care still in that institution. Um, and what they looked for is uh, what was a congruence between those two imaging studies um, uh, on the findings. And uh, interestingly, um, they saw a few different things. Um, so obviously, head ultrasound was very good at detecting high-grade bleeds, uh, stage, you know, grade threes and grade fours. Um, not as good at uh, detecting low-grade IVH, which was later detected on the term-corrected MRI. Um, and then what we already know about head ultrasound is that it frequently misses uh, uh, periventricular leukomalacia, which we know impacts neurodevelopment. Uh, something else that they added, uh, which I thought was interesting, is that um, sometimes we can even have an overestimation of, of the low-grade IVH. And the authors talked about how this impacts uh, the parental stress in the beginning of the uh, admission um, and how sometimes uh, it's all that they can think about. And so are we adding undue stress uh, to the, the parents by overestimating some of those low-grade bleeds? Um, I think something else they touched on, uh, which was so interesting, they had really good discussion um, about uh, kind of uh, our uh, caregiver distress for having to uh, report findings on a term-corrected MRI that we didn't previously know about. Um, and so much of that does change our practice, I think. Uh, but just because it makes us uncomfortable or we don't know exactly what it means doesn't mean that we shouldn't be talking to parents about it. So um, I think they had really robust discussion. Uh, I think that given the literature uh, that is 
continuing to come out about how even the lower grade bleeds, unilateral bleeds do change outcomes uh, for babies that that we owe it to families to give them as much information as as possible. Love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, no, I thought I agree. I agree with everything you're saying. I think it was a very interesting study because there's been more and more data that has come out in recent weeks and months about how low grade IVH is just not is not just not nothing. And we used to uh, think that a grade one or a grade two meant everything was going to be fine. And for long term neurodevelopmental outcomes, there was no independent association uh, in and of itself with mild mild IVH. If really there was nothing else going on, and and many. Um, many physicians have tailored their discussions with the family towards that uh, that data saying, well, if you have a grade one or a grade two, then then no big deal. And that recent data has shown that no, some, some of these babies do develop cerebral palsy, have long-term neurodevelopmental outcomes that are impaired. And so it has already started to change how we talk to families about grade one and grade two. Now, this paper highlights the fact that the head ultrasounds are just not very good at detecting mild IVH. And they had this very nice uh, matrix that looks at sensitivity, specificity, the positive and negative predictive value of head ultrasounds. And you could clearly see that for the severe types, the sensitivity specificities were always above 90, sometimes above, uh, above 80, sometimes above, way above 90%. But for low grades, it was actually very, uh, very poor. Um, and so it's adds another level of nuance that will need to be introduced, in my opinion, when we talk to families about a normal head ultrasound. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me of this, uh, of what this uh, author, Dr. Um, Nassim Taleb, who wrote the book Anti-Fragile and talked about some of the issues associated with how we interpret data. And he always made that difference between the evidence of absence versus the absence of evidence. And I thought that was exactly what this paper was touching on because we'll have normal head ultrasounds and we'll be very encouraged to tell the families, this is great news. All the while, this may still be hiding a low-grade IVH that potentially has long-term implications. So we'll have to move, I guess, towards what uh, Nassim Taleb is talking about saying, well, we have a normal head ultrasound, which means that there's the absence of evidence, but it doesn't mean that there's evidence of absence. Um, and so I think that's, that's, that, was, that was very, very cool. Um, and also to have that breakdown of the different um, babies that crossed categories mm-hmm. between cerebellar hemorrhage and all these other things that are being picked up on MRI. Um, I think this was very interesting to uh, actually get the magnitude, especially when they're represented in percentages. Um, it's, 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 it's quite shocking. Yeah, I think the the part particularly actually about cerebellar hemorrhage I, I had underlined here is um, we know that that will likely impact uh, motor development. And so to not have uh, that information for parents, to not have them looking for that, um, I, I think can be really a, a significant um, cause of morbidity for babies. Um, certainly it adds parental stress, but it does it does give them something to look for. But I think you hit the nail on the head that we're, we're just so hopeful, especially in a very uh, extremely preterm infant, to give the parents any um, kind of modicum of hope or that things are going well. And so we're so excited to say, oh, the head ultrasound is normal or it's low grade, um, when really I think we're also missing an opportunity to talk to parents about what does long-term outcome for the preterm baby just by nature being preterm, uh, regardless of, of IVH or PVL, really look like. 
Um, and there are some long-term features that I think that we're not discussing. So I think this paper hopefully will um, have people talking a little bit more about uh, what does our anticipatory guidance for families look like. Yeah, I think the, the, the next steps after this, this type of data is being published is we should really look at how many babies actually receive and pursue therapies mm -hmm. after discharge. Because I think for many parents, if the only issue with their baby, I mean, I guess we have to put that in, in quotes, the only issue with their baby is the fact that they're preterm, they may be encouraged not to pursue aggressively therapies because they feel they have a perception that their baby is doing great. And this MRI findings at term may actually give parents an objective and tangible evidence that there's a need to actively uh, do work with their child to actually catch up by sort of two, three years of age um, to full term sort of uh, to counterparts. Uh, so I think that that's, that was very interesting. Now, where this, this sort of leads us right back to the human milk study from, from New York is the fact that Going back to that study, looking at, at human milk versus, versus formula and IVH and PVL, all those studies, uh, all these markers of IVH and PVL were done on head ultrasound. Mm -hmm. And so it was funny that I did pick up on the fact that the PVL was measured by head ultrasound, which we know to be not very accurate. And we know that ideally um, you would need an MRI, even though if you do find PVL on head ultrasound, it's usually severe PVL. But I thought that this paper added another layer of confusion to that prior study about uh, milk and IVH and PVL because it just undermined the head ultrasound altogether, saying that even any IVH may not be reliable if you're just measuring it by head ultrasound. And so I thought that was very interesting how these two studies interconnected across two different uh, months of, uh, of, uh, of the Journal of Perinatology. Well, I think, too, it, it, uh, it speaks to some of the other articles we had in here that are, you know, our definitions matter, our how, how, uh, how we study, how we diagnose um, certain pathologies matters. And it, it changes the way we're able to study them and how we're able to talk about them, you know, across institutions, across countries, um, if we're not using kind of the same standards or definitions and it's and it's very difficult when those those uh practices are evolving mm -hmm. as the papers are being published yeah. so we're still not all in agreement that we should get term equivalent mris and yet so that undermines all the studies that are being published where pvl is diagnosed on just plain head ultrasounds mm -hmm. so i think it's just very interesting and it requires the authors to do this um this thorough review of their own data down the road as the as the protocols are sort of more refined. But let's since you're bringing the topic of um, research uh, projects associated with definition, uh, was there a specific uh, paper you wanted to jump to uh, regarding that? Well, I thought it, I thought this uh, uh, article on the definition of BPD uh, was really uh, valuable because when we talk about interventions, when we talk about long-term outcomes, um, so much rides on the, you know, and what are we using as the initial so diagnostic criteria? And so I, I thought they did something that I think we all talk about a lot, we question a lot, um, that this uh, team um, used the kind of three most popular um, definitions uh, of, of grading BPD. And they took their cohort of babies and they said, okay, uh, using each definition, 
um, would our baby qualify for BPD or not? Um, and the range, I don't have it written down here, something like it was like 9% to... Yeah, so, so their range very dramatically. Dramatically. So, about so. how would you even say that this particular baby has bronchopulmonary dysplasia based on any given uh, criteria. So this group out of, um, out of uh, the, the New York Presbyterian Children's Hospital in New York um, published this retrospective sort of review of their, of their data and trying to apply three, defini- three common definitions, which were the Vermont-Oxford Network definition, the 2001 NIH definition, and the 2018 NIH definition. And uh, for those who need a refresher, the Vaughn definition uh, really just looks at the amount of supplemental oxygen at 36 weeks and uh, assigns um, uh, an incidence of BPD depending on whether or not the baby is receiving either 21% or more. The NIH uh, 2001 definition uh, looks at BPD on a scoring scale where uh, you would have uh, mild BPD if you're breathing in room air at 36 weeks, moderate if you're receiving less than 30% oxygen at 36 weeks, and then severes where you would get more than 30% um, on CPAP and severe type 2 if you're on mechanical ventilation. The revision to that definition done by the workshop in 2018 has a a new grading system that's now grade 1, 2, and 3 and looks now more specifically at both the uh, fraction of inspired oxygen and the the interface with which this oxygen is being delivered. So it takes into account invasive um, ventilation, non-invasive, low-flow nasal cannula, high-flow nasal cannula, uh, hood oxygen, and... um, and it's a little bit more tedious. So what they did find was when they looked at their cohort, um, using the Vaughn definition, they had about 9% of BPD uh, in their unit. Looking at the 2001 definition, um, they had about um, 8% and uh, they had much more sort of um, moderate and grade 2 um, BPD uh, using that definition. And with the 2018 definition, really their, uh, their rates of BPD skyrocketed, mm-hmm. I think, to, uh, to something like 25%. And I think that would be true in most units. Um, you know, we have lots of babies who may be on low oxygen, but on, a, you know, high, high pressures. Um, and, you know, I think all of us kind of get that feeling as, you know, do, can I say this baby really doesn't have BPD? Um, but I think it would be helpful, right, for us to have a standardization, um, both in terms of counseling parents, um, but certainly in terms of research. Um, I don't, I, you know, it's hard for us to move forward in research and do comparative or comparisons between studies if we don't have a standardized uh, definition. So I think people are working towards that, but we're not quite there yet. Absolutely. And I think this goes at the core of how we assess our healthcare system in this day and age. Because if we're being measured by some of the outcome metrics that include something like BPD that is hinging dramatically on how we define it, there's going to be a huge incentive for people to use a definition that might favor their, their, pers- their institution. So obviously, if you look at these definitions, um, we all have to be in agreement as to what we want to use because if I'm able to choose, I can re-portray the outcomes of my unit one way or another. You can have incidence of BPD that comes closer to 5% when, according to another definition, you're closer to 30%. And the fact that the range is so wide is frightening, in my opinion, because it really doesn't allow us 
to compare outcomes equally um, if if institutions are not willing to play the game uh, truthfully and just really help in a collaborative way to share what experiences are to actually minimize the incidence and the burden of a disease that everybody is struggling with. Yeah, you're you're so right about that. Our um, our success as physicians, or what you know the the system has put on us as as success, um, really undermines progress sometimes uh, because we're we're just stuck in trying to uh, you know present our unit uh, as you know having the lowest rates of you know X, and we don't even have really good definitions to define that. Um, and unfortunately, it changes uh, funding, it changes patient flow um, when, you know, there are some units doing really good work uh, who, who may not be recognized because, like you said, maybe they're not playing the game or maybe they use a different definition um, to, to report for themselves internally. Um, and so I think there's there's value to standardization. Absolutely. And so just so to clarify, because I may have uh, transcribed the numbers wrong, but their outcomes, depending on the definition, was 9% for the Vaughn criteria, 28% of BPD with the 2001 definition of the NIH, and 34% with the 2018 definition. Now, where the authors were very... Uh, open in their sort of sentiment towards this issue with definition is the fact that it's coming from Columbia Presbyterian, a place that is notorious for its comfort with bubble CPAP mm -hmm. and the use of bubble CPAP um, well into sort of uh, the 32, the 31, 32 week mark, because their theory obviously is that providing this distending pressure is beneficial for long-term lung development. And so obviously um, when we're using the Vaughn definition, as long as you're on 21%, you're okay. But with these new definitions that really look at the mode and the interface that you're being that is being used, regardless of the FiO2, this has a significant impact for an institution like Columbia, which has had a great track record of using bubble CPAP until 32 weeks. And so obviously this creates this creates a problem. Um, I think the other thing it, it does is that it, it confuses parents, right? So um it's hard for parents to decide, are they at the right institution for their certain pathology? And also, does their baby have BPD or not? Depending on who, who they talk about, maybe at the same institution, people might give them uh, different definitions or different um, ideas about where their baby is and what their risk is for long-term disease. So our words matter. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and we all need also to realize that our current definitions are all imperfect. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's so many papers that have come out talking about the right way to define BPD. And some of them have shown that later assessment points are probably better, like 40 weeks corrected age, even though many babies are gone by that time. But we do realize that the arbitrary 36-week mark is imperfect. We do realize that the clinical evaluation of using um, just a mode of ventilation and an FiO2 is imperfect. And I think there was another article that uh, in this issue specifically that looked at room air trials. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was very interesting yeah. because that goes right back to the definition of physiologic um, BPD. And so um, let, me just, uh, let me just pull this up. Um, I am having trouble finding... Um, 
there we go, room air challenge. So that, uh, that article came out of uh, a group from uh, the Medical College of Wisconsin and uh, the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles and the University of Chicago. And so what they looked at was really, uh, the, the paper is entitled, Room Air Challenge Predicts Duration of Supplemental Respiratory Support for Infants with Bronchopulmonary Dysplasia. And their objective was to determine whether a room air challenge correlates with the duration of respiratory support for infants with bronchopulmonary dysplasia. And so what they did was for, uh, in a prospective fashion, for babies who were less than 32 weeks, um, they really looked at infants who were on less than two liters or less of uh, nasal cannula support. And they, they performed their room air challenge where they, they progressively go down on the FiO2 to 21% and see the baby's tolerance to uh, being on room air. Um, and they found that among those who passed their room air challenge, 32% were discharged on home oxygen anyway, compared to 88% of the babies who did fail, 90% of those who were on positive pressure at 36 weeks. Um, so, so sorry, yeah, so 32% versus 88 and 90%. So that was, that was huge. And um, there were a few things that they looked at. The, the, the time from 36 weeks to the stopping of the oxygen at home, they found that that was significantly different in babies who failed the room air challenge. And, and initially, those results felt a little bit dubious because you look at it and you say, well, obviously, if, if one person passes, then they're doing pretty good and they should be recovering sooner than the one who didn't do so well at the exact time point, at the exact same time point. But then in the discussion, um, they did touch on an, uh, an issue that I thought was very interesting because they said more and more people are moving towards the quote-unquote Jensen definition of BPD, where... Um, really we're starting to look at just the, the, the amount of support based on, on leader flow and so on. And they were saying that the proposed definition by Jensen is the easiest to apply retrospectively uh, in our study since all the infants receiving a room air challenge were receiving less than two liters of flow and would be classified as grade one. And they were making the point of saying once you're in that grade one BPD definition given by Jensen, where you are in that less than two liters um, uh, nasal cannula, it becomes difficult to tease apart of those babies who are the ones who are more vulnerable than the others. And they're saying that using the Jensen definition, our study findings would suggest that a room air challenge could provide additional information to distinguish respiratory outcomes. And I thought that was very interesting because it is true if you are on on non-invasive uh, mechanical ventilation. Yes, it may not be super necessary, but of all these babies who are on PD flow, one liter, 1.5, how do we actually differentiate these and prep these babies for a safe discharge is, is interesting. Yeah, uh, I also it also speaks to the differences in practice about deciding uh, to send babies home on oxygen. Um, so, so few uh, institutions are doing, which is probably the gold standard, which is a, a sleep study. Um, and so, you know, it, it still begs uh, the question, how, how do we make the decision about who, who really needs to go home on oxygen? Is it the baby who really uh, fails their room air challenge? Sure, those babies go home on oxygen, but there's probably a subset of babies who maybe don't fail, which they're showing here, don't fail, but still benefit from going home on a little bit of oxygen. And I think that that's, that's so important because you look at the time in weeks that it took to wean the babies completely right. off oxygen and you compare. So the babies who did fail their room air challenge had to remain on oxygen for something between like 16 and 37 weeks. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes we want to be very hopeful that even if the baby has failed the room air challenge, we're going to get there in a few weeks. And this may be completely sort of a pipe dream because they need much more time. And 
on top of that, even if they do pass the room air challenge test, you see that their, their time to uh, actually getting off oxygen is a median of 13 weeks with a range of 12 to 21 weeks. And, and so that's also very significant. Um, obviously, I think this has to be taken with a grain of salt because what are the criteria with which they're weaning these babies off? Fine. But at least even in relative terms, comparing the two, these are significant number of this significant amount of time to actually get these babies really off oxygen and it begs the question should we continue pushing babies mm -hmm. to go home on no oxygen at all costs sometimes discharging them not as safely as as they should be and not just leave it on even though they've passed their room air challenge test um i think that's something uh to 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 take out from this study. Well, it speaks to how we are managing BPD in general, right? It's not just about being on the lowest amount of support that you could possibly tolerate. It's really about um, changing our discussions about what does their kind of quality of life look like? Can they tolerate therapy? Can they uh, feed successfully? And I think sometimes we underestimate how much respiratory support uh, impacts their ability to feed. And so, Absolutely. yeah, I think I think uh, this was a study initially where I said, well, I'm not so surprised, but I think there are a lot of good takeaways hidden, hidden inside. Should we move on to another topic? Yeah, I actually thought um, that these uh, kind of dovetail nicely with this uh, QI uh, uh, article um, about standardization of uh, postnatal steroids. I knew you were going to like that article, especially <laughs> since we were talking about that this week, about the use of DART versus prednisolone. Okay. And, and so I had a few thoughts uh, about it. And basically what the team did um, was uh, provide really just a, a workflow uh, a diagram about which um, baby should be receiving postnatal steroids. And really... Their project was just intended to look at adherence uh, uh, to their to their protocol, and they did show improvement uh, through their uh, intervention about adherence to to protocols. And and the one thing I wanted to highlight about about this study when we talk about QI research is how do we get it done right? And so I think they did a very nice job, um, specifically outlining one of their successes was really that just-in-time reminder, um, which makes sense, right? Uh, yes. Sometimes when you're on service, you kind of may lose track of where the baby is in their process, even where the baby is in their admission, or you have something acute going on, and, um, and, and any one physician or provider who's on um, may miss the the mark. Uh, we see that all the time, right? Vaccines, uh, all sorts of things. And I think it's very important because it sort of makes sense when you think about this baby that may be stuck on a little bit of, right. of mechanical support and you're wondering how to get them off and so on and so forth. But it's for the babies where you may not think about it at all. Okay. The baby who is on very minimal support but still may meet criteria for hydrocortisone treatment or the babies who are very, very sick who you do not expect to get off a jet or an oscillator and yet may benefit from hydrocortisone. I think being able to be reminded in those situations that you still need to do risk assessment, even though in your head, obviously, the risk assessment is either very low or very high, it's still very important to not rely on intuition and actually plug all the numbers in and see if you're not sort of um, being fooled by the data. I thought this too would target babies who are kind of in the in the moderate range, right? There's some babies who are weaning and they're doing quite well. And there's some babies who are quite sick and you're always thinking about how, do I, how can I optimize this baby? What are the steroids? 
And then there are those babies who are on maybe moderate settings. And we may be less likely to kind of uh, initiate uh, steroid therapy in a baby where it really could, could help. I also think, obviously, there's a lot of debate still about what is, what is the right protocol to use when we're talking about initiating steroids. Um, and so, you know, that's a whole different discussion we can have. But I think they also highlighted something that was very important that we lose track of, and you know is kind of a passion of mine, but the fact that our variability in uh, management, even in the same institution, can be very overwhelming for parents, especially these parents of the the our most chronic babies, our most vulnerable families who have been there the longest. And they start to get that little bit of uh, ICU-itis, ICU delirium, and they must feel like, you know, every time somebody new is on the plan might change. And so I do think there's a lot of value to to parent satisfaction. Because families believe that we're just a discombobulated group of, of providers when in truth we're not really certain of what we're all practicing because the evidence is not cemented yet and and there's a little bit of an ego issue where we're not really being forthcoming with families saying, hey, we're giving steroids, but we're not really sure if this is the optimal medication, the optimal duration. We're just based that on, exactly, we're basing that on some relatively weak evidence. We're never telling that to families. And then they just see the variation and interpret that as sort of a lack of of, uh, of communication. Absolutely. So I, I wanted to highlight that study because I think it's a good reminder that, um, you know, we're always looking for standardization and how does it improve outcomes, knowing that sometimes it might not actually improve outcomes that we, you know, are being graded on by the hospital or, you know, that that we are, we're looking for in medicine, but um, it, it can improve uh, the parent experience in the NICU significantly. Um, and I liked, I, again, I like that. Maybe if we used more just-in-time reminders, either as research staff or using our um, EMR, that, that we'd be able to get, get more done. Absolutely. So since we're talking about the use of uh, postnatal steroids, let's talk about this study looking at the supplemental use of hydrocortisone. Mm-hmm. So should I go ahead or do you yeah. want to go ahead? So this study um, came out from a group that involves Duke University, um, another um, a few researchers from Baylor, Uh, some folks from the pediatrics medical group and uh, the Department of Economics at Clemson University. And um, this study is called the use of supplemental hydrocortisone in the management of persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn. I I was very interested in the study based on the title. And um, obviously, hydrocortisone is such a hot topic, as we just discussed, that any, any data coming out is always worth reviewing. The author's objective was really to characterize the association between hydrocort- the, re- the reception of hydrocortisone in, the, in babies and hospital outcomes of infants with PPHN. So they did a cohort study of uh, infants born at more than 34 weeks of uh, gestational age with PPHN who received inhaled nitrate oxide uh, in the first week of life between 2010 and 2016. Um, and they looked at a number of outcomes, including death, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, oxygen at discharge, and so on. And like with these big databases, they had thousands and thousands of babies. Um, and I think their idea to look into this was, was sound because there's a lot of animal model, as they describe in their background, that uh, shows that the uh, administration of hydrocortisone improved oxygenation, decreased PDE5 expression, and uh, increasing CGMP. Um, 
So, so does hydrocortisone needs to be a key player in the management of pulmonary hypertension is a very interesting question. If you're thinking of using nitric oxide, should you think of using hydrocortisone as well? This is something that I have found myself looking up and have discussed with other colleagues. So obviously, this was something of interest. Um, interestingly enough, they're used a, their definition of uh, bronchopulmonary dysplasia as uh, receiving oxygen or respiratory support um, after uh, between 28 to 34 days. But my biggest issue, obviously, was the fact that PPHN was not uh, diagnosed uh, more strictly. And in their definition, they said, we define PPHN, um, CDH, and meconium aspiration syndrome by clinician diagnosis in the electronic medical record, which I feel like CDH usually is... If you, if you diagnose it, you, <laughs> you know what's going on. Uh, meconium aspiration syndrome is also uh, fairly reliable. But PPHN, if you don't really have an echocardiogram, it's very difficult. Uh, well, and he, I mean, even CDH, right? There's such a range, a spectrum of babies with diaphragmatic hernia that they act, they act differently. But I, and, and I feel like PPHN is um, it's such a, a wide spectrum because on the one hand, you will have babies who will, do, who will get an echocardiogram and who will show signs of PPHN and then will be treated appropriately. That's fine. There's also babies who clinically behave as PPHN and may end up being treated empirically. I think that's fine too. And some babies may just like be tried on nitric oxide just to see if it helps because resources because of the time of the day it is or because of the, of the the day of the week it is and i feel like that's fine too but for research purposes that creates a huge issue um, if the pathology is not clearly defined i think it opens the door for a lot of issues with the interpretation of the data um, the um, other issue that i had was that in their um, in their results section um, they seemed to have struggled with the volume of CDH baby. And so they wrote that they were unable to analyze the effect of hydrocortisone exposure um, in the, um, in the, on the outcomes of interest in infants with CDH because there was only 32 infants with CDH in the cohort. Um, I think that was nice of them to report that. Um, but uh, obviously, this, this, this uh, leaves a lot uh, to be wanting from this, uh, from this study. In the end... Um, their their main results obviously was that um, what they found was in their in their about three thousand database ba of, of babies thirty percent received hydrocortisone and um, there was no difference in their uh, reports on death bronchopulmonary dysplasia or oxygen at discharge between the babies who did receive uh, hydrocortisone versus the ones who did not um, in the babies who had meconium aspiration syndrome hydrocortisone was associated with the decreased uh, oxygen at discharge. And, um, and so that was, that was the conclusion. So I have to be honest with you. I feel like it's always difficult to balance the benefits and the drawbacks from these big database study. On the one hand, you have such a large patient population that it's sort of so enticing to just study it. On the other hand, uh, you can find a lot of uh, statistically significant stuff that may not be clinically significant. And in this case, the biggest issue, obviously, is how the pathologies were defined. Mm -hmm. And the volume is so big, obviously, that they couldn't have gone chart by chart to review how PPHN was diagnosed. So I'm curious to see if anybody is going to submit a letter to the editor next month to discuss uh, how to interpret these results. Because it is, it is a, if anything, the study may be a little bit flawed. But at the end of the day, it's a, such an important discussion to have because when PPHN comes up, it's such a frightening yeah. illness and pathology that you want to be able to uh, use medicines and, and interventions to the maximum of their abilities. And hydrocortisone is definitely in that list.
yeah, in, in our arsenal. I agree. I think there was a lot of data, which I was, I was grateful for how much data they gave. But I still want, I found myself wanting more, right? I wanted the groups to be uh, different. I wanted them to be split by pathology. Um, I thought it was interesting, uh, you know, that the babies were on nitric, but what about babies that weren't on nitric, you know, as a, as a third independent group? And then uh, certainly when we're talking about pulmonary hypertension and the use of steroids, uh, you know, we don't know what were the indications for starting the steroids for, for each of the um, babies. And uh, certainly uh, hypotension in and of itself is a, is a kind of an independent um, risk factor for worsening, worsening of disease. And so um, I think it's a good start. I think we're going to have to keep talking about it. Uh, I think there are always going to be people who will be using a lot of hydrocortisone and there are always going to be people who uh, don't want to use it at all absolutely and they mentioned that in their discussion um they they uh if, if i can find the uh, in our in our unadjusted cohort infants treated with hydrocortisone had a more severe clinical course as indicated by higher vas vasopressors sedatives and paralytics use as well as high frequency ventilation uh, this is not surprising because hydrocortisone is used as a rescue therapy prior to ecmo uh, in some centers and i think this is exactly right and like you're saying, we don't really know what was the motivation between high-end hydrocortisone. It may not have always been because of pulmonary hypertension. Mm -hmm. It may have been for other reasons. But it's almost as if the benefits of this study uh, are going to be great because it it just it's a bit polarizing mm -hmm. and it's going to lead people to actually go further into that topic and and cross right. the T's, dot the I's. And so I'm looking forward to see what kind of door this opens um, for for the research community. Absolutely. So we're almost uh, getting to the end of our first episode because it's been now for 49 minutes. So let's, uh, was there, was there a few other papers that you had in mind? Well, you know, I wanted to talk about, it's not what you wanted to talk about, I'm sure, but I like this, uh, this kind of review article on functional neuroimaging. Yes. <laughs> So, uh, I mean, it was really just a good review about um, what do we know about the preterm brain, which is not a lot, really. <laughs> and I think it's such a good kind of merging of disciplines. Um, so we have neonatology, but um, really neonatologists are not using a lot of functional MRI. Uh, you know, very few groups are. Um, but this is, uh, you know, the neurobiologist, uh, psychologist, there are lots of disciplines that use functional MRI routinely uh, in their, in their uh, research. And so, like you said, you know, right now our modalities are really head ultrasound and MRI. And is that giving us the best information um, for one, anticipatory guidance for families, but two, uh, for studying our interventions? And so, I think that this um, kind of review article, which basically just describes some of the findings in functional neuroimaging, uh, it's how we understand some of the deficits that we see in the premature baby, regardless of, of uh, IVH, that um, memory tasks are particularly difficult, that they have different uh, decreased cognitive control. So we know that um, the rates of attention uh, deficit and hyperactivity disorder is increased in the preterm infant. And that a lot of these babies into school age, into adulthood, still have some difficulty with emotional processing. And um, it may help elucidate that link uh, that there is some uh, more 
many parents and uh, pediatricians are concerned about uh, preterm babies being on the autism spectrum disorder. So I think it's, it's exciting because we just need more information um, about how we can help um, provide interventions for these babies long-term, how we can educate these babies uh, in early childhood. Um, but also, again, some of the interventions that we are doing in the NICU every single day, this may be, give us another whole nother avenue for um, evaluating the efficacy of those. Of those so things. this is, I'm very, so happy that you're talking about these things because there's a few articles in the journal this month about near-infrared spectroscopy yeah. and cerebral sort of oxygen monitoring. And so there's three specific papers that we have to talk about then. There's, there's the two actual studies that have looked at um, various aspects and uses of NEARS. And there's this editorial, which I almost wanted to sort of hang in my room. It was so good. Um, the, fir the first paper is uh, called The Association Between Early Cerebral Oxygenation and Neurodevelopmental Impairment or Death in Premature Infants. And... Um, this was a follow-up study of the new prem uh, paper that was published. Um, I forgot when it was published. It was published in 2018. And it looked at the use of near-infrared spectroscopy on baby's brain during resuscitation. And what they looked at was the relationship. Uh, this, uh, just for the sake of completeness, this, this was done by the Neonatal Research Institute at Sharp Mary Birch Hospital in San Diego, California. Um, the group tried to assess the relationship between cerebral oxygenation in the first 72 hours of life and neurodevelopmental impairment at two years of age corrected. Um, and they had taken 127 infants, less than 32 weeks of gestation. Uh, they placed the NEARS, left it for 72 hours. And, using, and, they, and they basically reported something that was very interesting. They were almost a little bit too categorical with it, but they were reporting a threshold of 67%. And they're saying using a threshold cutoff for cerebral hypoxia, uh, they noted that anybody who was below that threshold um, had significant uh, neurodevelopmental impairment um, and, um, and, and, and long-term sort of uh, long-term impairment was associated with, with spending a significant amount of time below that threshold. So they said that this O2 saturation uh, threshold of 67% was quote unquote, a predictor of death or NDI uh, with a statistical significance of 0.049. Um, and so, this obviously is a paper that deserves probably a full journal club, mostly because the initial study was very good, but their follow-up rates were a bit low in this case. So I think they were only able to assess babies at two years of age, um, only 62% of their cohort they were able to assess, which follow-up rates is always difficult, but you expect for a study to be really impactful to have at least 80% or above. So I felt like 62% was, um, was a little bit shy of what, what you would want. So that study showed that um, measuring brain tissue oxygenation in the first 72 hours of life is an important factor. We'll go into some of the editorial on that topic in a minute. But the other article that I thought was very interesting was this sort of... Um, this change in, in, it's called Changes in Cerebral Tissue Oxygenation and Fractional Oxygen Retraction Extraction with Gestational Age and Postnatal Maturation in Preterm Infants. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to look at this. This was a study that um, uh, was done from uh, the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, the George Washington University in, in D.C., and uh, in, an, in another center in Canada, and the Pediatric Newborn Medicine Brigham and Women 
in Boston. And so what they did was use NIRS to sort of create normograms of both oxygen saturation and tissue oxygen extraction uh, between day of life uh, 0, uh, 7, 14, 21, and 28. These were obviously intermittent measurements, but they were able to provide these graphs that were beautiful. Um, the accuracy we can talk about, but obviously they were beautiful. And I think this, this is uh, the kind of data that we want to see coming out of NIRS. And so what they showed was that uh, tissue uh, oxygen saturation and um, cerebral fractional tissue oxygen extraction was not continuous and it evolves over time. And it almost seems like the brain gets better with time and more efficient in extracting oxygen um, as the baby gets older and or as the baby is born uh, less prematurely. And I thought that was very interesting because it does it does make sense that as babies do mature, they're uh, able to um, effectively pull the oxygen from the vessels gets better and better. Um, so I thought these were interesting studies because NIRS seems to be the new hot thing mm-hmm. and everybody's jumping on it. But I was very surprised to see the editorial, mm-hmm. which was not critical, but sort of was trying to moderate the excitement of all this data coming out on, on NIRS. And um, first of all, before I go over the editorial, what were your thoughts? What, what, are, what are your thoughts on NIRS in the NICU right now? And... And what are the implications of using NIRS, uh, especially considering what you were talking about, about the extra interventions that it might lead to and their impact on, yeah. on the infant? So I think that it's a Pandora's box right now, right? But I think the data that they found was um, not entirely surprising, given what we know about, you know, cerebral oximetry measurements in the term infant and transition over time. Uh, I I think the editorial hit on some interesting points that um, what so what do we do with the information and what do we do with the trends and do we act on them do we intervene or do we just use them as uh, prognostic markers and I think the whole in neonatology doesn't know yet um, certainly probably the area that this is most well studied um, is in HIE um, and so you know we do have some data about the the predictive values of of having uh, nears trends um, and and uh, kind of at least the short term outcomes um, with with HIE, but certainly there's probably something to be said uh, similarly for the for the preterm baby. So I think it's a good start. I think. Uh, we needed the data. We needed the normative values. Uh, it's, we can't study it without having uh, the normative data. Uh, but I think, I think probably every journal from here on out is going to have uh, NIRS uh, articles in it because because I agree with you. I think it's our our next vital sign that that people are going to try to use. I think it makes sense, especially when we talk about something like the functional image brain imaging, um, because there's some things that we just can't see anatomically, but we know affect the tissue long term. Um, so I think we're just going to be seeing a lot more study about cerebral oximetry. But I, I think what you're getting at, and you and I have discussed this many times, is we still as a group as a whole don't know what to do with the information. Right. And, and so that's that's sort of what um, the uh, editors are alluding to. Number one, with the idea that every time you want to try to connect 
um, interventions done at birth or shortly after birth to outcomes two years down the road. It's always very tedious. And, and they, they say that plainly, saying it is likely that the clinical state at discharge, the results of late imaging, of late brain imaging and or neuropsychological testing may overrule the predictive value of events that occurred early in the neonatal course. And that's obviously something that, that needs to be taken into account. The other thing that they mentioned was um, can a reduction in cerebral hypoxia actually improve clinical outcomes? I think that was something that this paper, looking at this saturation in the first 72 hours of life, really begs to begs an answer for. So if I do manage to get SATs above 67, does that mean that um, I'll have better outcomes? And the, the answer is that we don't know. Um, and, and, there's, and there's so many other things where we shouldn't also forget all the other interventions that we're working on that are known to improve outcome. So that's what uh, I was happy to see also from the editor saying that many other complications of preterm birth, such as inflammation, nutritional insufficiency, abnormal sensory inputs may contribute. And it has been proposed that hypoxia and ischemia is not a significant contributor to the overall burden of neurodevelopmental deficit in this vulnerable population. So I think because it is a new technology, because it's getting more and more attention, we're going to want to have this incorporated into the NICU. We're going to want to believe that this is the end-all be-all, and it's really not there yet. So they asked the questions plainly, and they said, are we ready for the routine use of cerebral oximetry in the NICU? And their answer is probably not. And... Um, I just want to read what they wrote because they're making uh, reference to um, the safe boost trial phase three that's going to come out, which obviously is going to be uh, great to review. Um, but they're talking about, although better technology is coming, no quantum leaps are expected. Healthcare personnel availability is limited in busy NICUs and the benefits of monitoring cerebral oximetry may depend as much on the agility of the clinical staff as on the device itself. And so even though they're mentioning that significant harm is unlikely, meaning like skin marks due to the heat and pressure, uh, they're rarely serious. But, and that was so good, they said the mismanagement due to falsely low readings or due to faulty reasoning when trying to respond to cerebral hypoxia is possible. And I think that was so good. And they're saying in any case, adding another sensor, another cable, another screen, and another number to the already crowded neonatal intensive care environment that surrounds such small and frail newborn patients and the parents, that was for you, is likely to disturb even more. And, and we should not disturb unless necessary. So I thought that was so well put. And, and I think that we have to sometimes maybe put the brakes a little bit and reassess how we do all these things, especially when we're talking about what you were mentioning before, functional MRI. Is, is what would be a better uh, use of our time, resources? Uh, would it be functional MRI versus NIRS? Um, so I think this is this idea that we have to really have a, a long, deep introspection mm -hmm. into what we can do to evaluate the baby's brain is, uh, is something that, that, that's going to be, I think, the big topic of debate for the next few years. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think, you know, and I've looked in cerebral oximetry quite a bit, uh, some extensive reading on it, especially as it relates to HIE. And I, and I think what we will find long term is that it's not the high values, it's not the low values, it's probably something about your transition uh, from high to low or, or vice versa that, that we'll see. Um, and that's what we know about the preterm physiology, that it is transitional. Uh, it's changing every hour after birth. It's changing every day after birth. And um, 
there's so much that we still don't kind of understand about that transition. And I think it's it's very well reflected in in our use of cerebral oximetry as it stands. And and absolutely, and and the editors were sharing something to that if to that extent where they they reported this graph looking at some of the interventions that were done based on the readings, um, including uh, changes in dopamine infusions, fluid boluses, and obviously these are not benign. And when you're considering that these interventions are done based on a reading on a device that we still don't fully understand that has its own limitations, I think it's very important to be cautious. All right. I think that's the end of episode number one. Um, thank you, Daphna. Yeah, thanks for joining us, everybody. We're looking forward to, to uh, digesting more neonatology. That's right. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICUPodcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at Dr. NICU, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at Dr. Daphna MD. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.